following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Here's the thing about preaching from the lectionary. They assign the texts for you. It's all done in a laboratory somewhere years in advance. Uh, And you come to a Sunday and you can't choose your own Bible passages. And um, if you don't like the ones they give you, you have to preach on them anyway. I'm not saying I don't like the ones that were in the lectionary today. I am saying that um, it's been a couple of weeks where these are texts that I might not have chosen for myself. Last week it was all about sin. If you were here, we were bombarded with sin in the lectionary passages, and I preached a sermon about that. And this week, I don't know how many of you read ahead, but this week is all politics, right? Yeah, I know, I know. (laughs) I read them too. So um, last week we had inside, and this week we have out, inside-out faith. It all fits together nicely in the series we're doing, but that does mean that today we get to talk about that intersection between religion and politics, which is, I think, the most polite thing you could talk about. Um, We'll see what happens. Um, By the way, tonight at our, uh, we have this this wonderful party for our return from sabbatical, and I'm going to be playing some songs that I heard over the summer, and one of them is a a really great song about family and politics and religion, and I can't wait to share that song with you. Um, But first I have to give a sermon about those things and make it out alive, so we'll see. Uh, But I hope you can make it tonight at 5 p.m. Here's what I'd like to ask us to do this morning, uh, is just plan ahead and agree to give each other some grace about this really dicey topic, okay? Can we all do that? Yes. Yes. All right, here's how I want to dive right in. Psalm 79, verse 1. This was one of the alternative psalms that the lectionary gave us uh, today. It's not the one that we read at the call to worship, as you'll see in just a minute. Why? It starts out, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. Right off the bat, we are in us and them territory, aren't we? Which is the problem with politics. It's instantly an us and them situation. Psalm 79, like all of the Psalms, is a song. Right? And this is a song that was written about historical events. Those historical events are in part referred to in some of the other texts in the lectionary today. So I've said this word a bunch of times. If you don't know what the lectionary is, just Google the word. It's like dictionary, but it starts out L-E instead of D-I. Lectionary, it's just an assignment of, of text. And you can go find it, you Google it, you'll get it, you'll see what I'm talking about. We didn't have time to read all of them. This psalm is about some of the historical events that are referred to in the other Hebrew Bible passages from the lectionary text, the conquest of Jerusalem. Right? Now, sometimes a song is the best way to capture history, I think. It's not always as precisely accurate as a history book might be, although we some, I think we probably overstate the accuracy of our history books. Um, but a song is much truer to the impact of the events. It's the antidote or the counterpoint to that truism that history is written by the victors. History may be written by the victors, but at least some of the songs are written by the losers. And this is a song that was written by the losers because it's about the conquest of the holy city of Jerusalem. Here's another verse that you find in Psalm 79. This is verse 6. Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you. And on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. Here's a little uh, tip for reading 
the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the, the Jewish Hebrew Bible portion of the scriptures. When you see the word nations, you can just sub in the word Gentiles. The Hebrew word is goyim, right? It just means the others, right? I'm rewatching Lost right now. I don't know why, but the others is like a big thing in my head. It's a very us and them uh, type of categorization. But what I see in this text is a plea for, or maybe depending on when it was written and how, what voice it was written in, uh, a backwards explanation of some violence that occurred and an attempt to spiritualize it by attributing it to God. Now, since I believe that Jesus perfectly reveals the heart of God, and since Jesus unequivocally taught us to love our enemies, not to slaughter them, I actually don't believe that verses in the Bible that seem to attribute violence to God should be read carelessly and just taken at their face value. I think we have to do more work with them to understand them than just to say, yep, I guess God wanted to murder all those people, okay? Suffice it to say, I think it's possible in this instance that what the psalmist is identifying as God's anger toward those others is actually the psalmist's own anger. I don't think it's consistent with the call of Christ to seek violent revenge against our enemies. But I'll tell you what it is consistent with. It is consistent with human nature. It is consistent with the first reaction we have when we experience something terrible. And here's the thing. This is so important to understand if you're going to be students of the Bible. It's actually impossible to separate human experience from divine revelation. Because the divine revelation of Scripture doesn't come to us any other way except through the lenses of the human beings who wrote it down. Okay? This is one of the reasons why interpreting the Bible can actually be quite challenging. But, on the flip side, it also can lead us to a more honest experience with Scripture, sometimes raw and painful, sometimes joyful. But I raise the point about the psalmist calling for divine retribution in the form of violence against Israel's enemies for that very reason, because this kind of text gets right up in our face with all kinds of tensions that we experience when we read Scripture. The tension between Christian ethics and human nature is what I hinted at a minute ago. The tension between a personal faith commitment and community life. That's inside-out faith. That's what the whole series is about in September. The tension between Christian teaching and political ideology. The tension between our religious beliefs and commitments and our citizenship. Or even sometimes maybe our patriotism. These tensions can be hard for us to work out. But here's something that I think is good news. Hopefully you will too. We are not alone in figuring that out. Not only do we have each other in the kumbaya sense of being not alone. But we have the whole history of Christianity, which has been wrestling with this, and even in the pages of Scripture, in other words, the very earliest documents of Christian history, we see this kind of thing being worked out. This is exactly the kind of thing that the early Christians were dealing with as they emerged out of an oppressed class of people in the so-called Holy Roman Empire. 
And in this text that you heard read before the, the sermon today from 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is addressing this type of challenge. At least in chapter 2 he is, writing to his protege, Timothy. Now, I'm not going to reread the whole text. You heard it read wonderfully before the sermon, but I'll reiterate the key verse and we can put it on the screen as well. Paul says to Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions. All right? Kings is a tip-off. It tells us we're going to get into the politics even deeper now. But before we try to figure out what that might mean for us as people living in America with the 2020 presidential campaign already underway and in full swing, Lord help us, I want us to think for a minute about what those words might have meant to a first century Christian listener. So, um, in case you don't know, Christianity emerged out of Judaism in the first century. And uh, the Jews were already an oppressed group within the Roman Empire. They were basically tolerated, but they were definitely under the thumb of this oppressive ruler, the emperor, the Caesar. And more locally and specifically, they were given a puppet king. King Herod was the king of the Jews. He was a, a tool of the Roman Empire. That's why the phrase king of the Jews when applied to Jesus became so controversial. Controversial might be a little bit of an understatement considering there was an execution involved. But uh, Jewish believers, as Christian believers, are, are, were monotheists, right? How many gods did the Roman Empire have? More than one. So the mono part of monotheism doesn't really work. You are an enemy of the state already if you only believe in one god. And Christianity now is a specific religion that's based on the teachings of a Jewish rabbi, Yeshua, Joshua. We call him Jesus. This Jewish rabbi was deemed so resistant to the powers of the empire that he was publicly executed in a humiliating way that was reserved for the enemies of the state. Christianity is based on the teachings of that rabbi and on the worship of that rabbi because, spoiler alert, he raised from the dead. Okay? Now, if you are a materialist, if you're an atheist or an agnostic, if you've come into this room and you're not buying into the resurrection stuff at this point, that's okay. Please don't tune out the rest of what I say because I think this might still make sense to you. I think you can still get what's happening here. The key rabbi of Christianity... Jesus himself was executed by the state. Every other significant Christian leader in the early church was also put to death by the state, with one exception, John, who got off easy and was only sent off to an island where he lived the rest of his days in exile and wrote a semi-psychedelic allegorical story <laughs> aimed at taking down the Roman Empire, um, which very creative youth pastors 2,000 years later would deem actually to have been about Dungeons and Dragons and speed metal, all along, <laughs> but this isn't about the 90s, uh, or my youth group, or yours. This is about religion and politics. Um, <laughs> but the book of Revelation is incredibly political. If you don't know, now you know. But this document we're looking at today from First Timothy was written within years or maybe decades of the emperor Nero setting Rome on fire and then blaming the Christians. This is the culture into which Christianity was born and blossomed. You have to understand then how countercultural, how politically revolution the, 
revolutionary the Christian religion was in these early days, which I think ought to make us feel somewhat unnerved when we find modern Christianity to be cozied up with government, especially when we find Christian leaders demanding obedience to, say, a king or a prime minister or a president of any party. But that doesn't seem weird to us now because that's the way it is. That's the status quo in the modern world. The point is, what we find in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is actually much more remarkable than it seems to us today. Here's the words again of the Apostle Paul. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions. I want you to imagine now for a minute what that would sound like being read aloud in a church gathering that was being held in a secret location, a dark cave or a hidden room in one of the wealthy Christians' homes, because to worship in public would have meant imprisonment at best and maybe worse at the hands of those kings and people in high positions. I can imagine hearing those words and going, what? Really? Prayers, supplications, thanksgivings for Herod, for Nero, for the crucifiers? I don't think so. So do you understand that this instruction that Paul gives to Timothy, and I think my view of scripture is that that means we all need to take it seriously, it's unavoidably political. But I think sometimes we assume that everything that's political has to immediately also be partisan. And I don't think that's true. Let me explain what I mean this way. You might, right now, based on your particular partisan political views, you might be particularly energized. You might find it quite easy to pray for our country's current political leaders. Or, if you have different politics, different partisan views, you might be finding it nearly impossible to pray for our country's current leaders through the cloud of resentment and disdain that you hold them in. Whichever category you're in, it's probably the opposite one you were in five years ago. I suppose that these words are always going to be more challenging to people. This instruction is always going to be more difficult to people who do not approve of the political party or leader or leaders that are currently in power. But what I'm trying to say to you is that that doesn't matter. Scripture calls us to this work of prayer and, yes, even thankfulness in either case. We know that because of the context. If you were only called to pray and give thanks during the times when your favored political party was in power, Paul would never have written these words to Timothy in the year that he wrote them to Timothy. Because... However bad it might be for uh, you at a given time in American history, or for me, it was worse for Timothy then. Now what I am not saying is that every political ideology is equal. We have quite enough both sidesism happening in our country now as it is. Thank you very much. But I think we are all... Um, charged with the work of determining whether this or that political view is compatible with Christian belief. We all have the duty of that discernment, of that wisdom. But we also all have the duty to pray for our leaders, to situate ourselves as spiritual intercessors 
for our neighbors, local, national, global. Paul, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why (laughs) is the question that comes immediately to mind for me at certain times. But what we are are given in this little Bible text is um, a little tiny word that tips us off, (laughs) that we're about to get the why, right? It's one of those words that I encourage you to look for when you're reading Scripture. You know how I always say, what is the therefore, therefore? We also have this other word, which is on the screen. Now, (laughs) for. You can also say, what is the for, for, right? Well, the for um, is the transitional word that you can almost always substitute the word because, right? It's an old-timey way of saying because, right? Why should we pray for all those kings and people in power? Well, because, and here's what comes next. For there is one God. There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. So, why should we pray for political leaders who are a complete disaster, who are utterly anti-Christ, who only pretend to be religious, to curry favor with spineless, obsequious Christian leaders who are also seeking their own power? Why should we pray for kings and leaders who seem sometimes to be working against the kingdom of God or the gospel as we understand it, the ones who seem determined to uh, strike drones constantly, to deport constantly, to harm marginalized people that you care about? Why should I pray for those leaders? Because there is one God. By the way, that's monotheism. Saying there is one God in whatever year this book was written, and we don't know exactly, that's a political statement. There is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus. That is also a political statement. The inscription on the Roman coin said, Caesar is Lord. And so whenever a Christian said, Jesus is Lord, they were risking their lives because that was placing Jesus in the place of Caesar. Saying that Christ Jesus is the only mediator between God and humankind is a political statement. And Christ Jesus is a king who is not interested in conquest and subjugation, but in deliverance of the poor and oppressed. Paul goes on to talk about Jesus and says he gave himself a ransom for all. Meaning that you and I are saved by his work. Not by citizenship in a particular country. Not by any ruler. Not by having the strongest military in the history of the world. Not by your respect for the flag. Not by marching. Not not by being part of the hashtag resistance. Not by donating to a Senate candidate 12 states away just so you can feel for five minutes like you have a little tiny bit of control in a world that seems to be spinning out of control, which may or may not be something I have done in the last two years more than once. In other words, no matter what your partisan or political leanings happen to be, all of those things are uh, overseen, overwhelmed, and enveloped by the oneness of God and by the centrality and lordship of Jesus Christ. Not because politics don't matter, they matter profoundly, but because it is God who holds us together. It is Christ who is the true king. 
and no human government, whatever harm it may be able to do to you or to someone you love, can ever change that. So, why do we say the creed? That's the obvious follow-up question, right? (laughs) I'm going to ask us to say the creed together in just a minute. And I want to tell you one of the reasons that we say the creed. It's not... It's not just to pound Christian doctrine into your head. It's not just to make you memorize something. Although, I will say, we've been doing the confirmation class with uh, some of our, our uh, younger people, and they have all memorized the creed. It's actually awesome to hear them say the creed out loud. Just We say, okay, what's, what phrase are we on? And we say it, and then they just keep going, and they say the whole thing, because they know it, because we say it all the time. But we don't say it for the purpose of helping memorization. That's, a, that's a, like a side bonus. We say the creed because it is the center around which we are gathered. Now, at any given time, you may have a struggle with this or that phrase in the creed. You may have trouble believing today in the virgin birth or the resurrection. But the fact is, you're not in or out of this community by whether or not you are inside these boundary lines. You are in or out of this Christian community by being gathered around the same center. And the center for us, theologically, is the creed. And so you may be way on the left, you may be way on the right, you may be one of those um, moderates holding on to the middle, which is increasingly hard to do. But wherever you are on that spectrum or any other, you are here drawn together around this statement, which I'm going to ask us all to say together now. And uh, can we please put that on the screen? This is the Apostles' Creed. Let's say it together, if you will. I believe in God, the Father Almighty the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I hope and do pray that that is maybe just a tiny little bit, maybe just a first baby step toward... uh, healing and reconciliation in our world. We do gather around a creed, but even more than a theological statement, we gather around a table. And it would be pretty hard to come up with a better place to end a maybe sort of difficult, challenging message about religion and politics than at a dinner table. Because what better place to discuss religion and politics than the dinner table? (laughs) Some of us are already dreading Thanksgiving. I'm not saying that I am, but I know that some of you might be. But when you come around that dinner table, you are, you are family. And I recognize that families sometimes are broken and seem beyond repair, and maybe we won't see that repair in this life. But this table is the table of the Lord, not of the church, but of the Lord. And it's to be made ready for all who seek Him. And that's regardless of who you are, where you've been, who you love, what your politics are whether you agree with or even like the person who happens to be next to you at the time that you sit down. 
at his table because if he invites you, you are welcome. And if he invites that person, they are welcome. And guess what? He invites us all. And so all are welcome at this table now. I do encourage you and invite you to come and receive this sacrament, this holy meal, which is uh, not only an act of remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for us and for the forgiveness of sins, but is actually also the real presence of the Savior in the bread and in the cup. May you know that and receive it. May it be sustenance for your spirit. And especially today, may it be an act of unity with each other, with Christians around the world and across the ages who have participated in this same sacrament. So as we, as we sing, our table is open. I do invite you, please come. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.